Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? You good? Uh, it's good to be together. We're going to dive right in in just a moment. But I want to welcome those of you who are new to our church, as well as everybody watching across the D.C. metro area at our different locations and all of you watching online. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here in our church. And we are going to dive in and uh, uh, in the long journey uh, through the Gospel of Mark. We are closing out our series uh, as we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 15 verse 42 of the Gospel of Mark, and work our way uh, through chapter 16. But before we get started, a question for you that maybe you've thought about, maybe you haven't thought about. Here's the question. Why do we even know about Jesus? Like when you really think about it, carpenter's son from a kind of nondescript part of town, um, why do we even know about him? You might say, well, the answer is because he's arguably the most or certainly one of the most prominent religious figures in all of human history. And Christianity is one of the largest religions in the world. So that's, that's why we know about him. And if that's your answer, that we know about Jesus in 2023 because Jesus was popular, it's because you don't really understand how devastating crucifixion was. Now, we all have an idea of how physically devastating it was. Even if you haven't maybe studied it as in detail as I have, we we all have a general idea of how physically devastating it was. And we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. But the physical torture was actually only a small part of what crucifixions were designed to accomplish. The ultimate goal, listen, of crucifixion, when you study this in history, was to erase a person from social memory. That was the goal. That's how shameful crucifixion actually was. One writer said this, from a Jewish perspective, anyone who was crucified was accursed and excluded from the circle of the living and from the fellowship of God. You say, well, what about the Romans who perfected if you want to call it the art of, of crucifixion, how they view it. F.F. Bruce, New Testament scholar, he said that in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity not to be uttered in conversation. The cross was so shameful and intentionally so designed to be this public shaming, this public execution, but it wasn't just designed to kill somebody. It was designed so that from that point on in history, you don't talk about that person anymore. And so when Jesus was crucified, that should have been the end, not just of the end of his life, but of the end of, it should have been the end of his legacy. And there were thousands upon thousands of crucifixions during the Roman era, and you don't know the name of any one of them. Neither do I. None of us do. Except Jesus of Nazareth. You know why you know that name? Because he rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead. And so as we finish out our study of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at the day Jesus was resurrected, and then we're going to reflect on what that means for us. Can we do that? I'm going to do it anyway, but I would appreciate your involvement. Can we do that? Yeah. yeah, all right, all right. So just to catch you up, Jesus had died, been crucified, and he, he's died. He's, he's given his last breath earlier that afternoon, and that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 15, verse 42. And if you have your own copy of the Bible, you can follow along with us. But if not, we'll have the verses up on the screen. But before we, we get there, Jesus' death presented sort of a practical problem. And that's because according to Deuteronomy 21:23, a criminal that was executed for a capital offense, their body needed to be removed as soon as possible. It needed to be removed before sunset because their body would have been unclean. And so not only did they deserve like a proper burial, but their body would have desecrated the land. And so there was a little bit of an urgency because Sabbath is the next day. First of all, sun is going down, but Sabbath is the next day. They're not allowed to work on the next day. 
And so they want to hurry up and get Jesus' body down off the cross. And so chapter 15, verse 42 picks up. It says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, and Mark explains what that means, it was the day before the Sabbath. This is in the Old Testament. Day of preparation is, is, is since you're not allowed to work on Sabbath, you had to get everything done and prepare, right, the day before Sabbath. In verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And continuing in the chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, which verse 40 tells us, this is the same Mary. She had two sons, James and Joseph. Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices for like kind of per perfuming oil so that they might go and anoint Jesus. Now, pause there for a moment. There, these, these women want to pay their respects to Jesus. And they're going to do that with these spices. They want to kind of anoint or perfume his dead body. And before we move on, I want you to notice something here. Notice how Mark keeps referencing specific people and giving specific information about them. And I, I bring this up, let me tell you up front, because this is not what we're reading here. Is, is not, this is not like superstition or something like that. Like these, these are historical claims about an actual historical event. And you see it in the way they write. So he's mentioning specific people and specific details about these people. So, for example, back earlier in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we studied this already. It says, so Jesus is carrying the cross. And it says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. It's a lot of details. Like, why all these details? Matter of fact, I didn't know until I started studying the Bible that Rufus wasn't exclusively an African-American name. I didn't know that. Like, I just thought Rufus was a black uncle, perpetually. That's what I thought, right? Amen. We don't know who this dude is or who Alexander is or whatever. Who the point is, he's giving specific details, right? And British scholar Richard Bauckham says, you ask, well, why does he do that? Richard Bauckham says, this was the ancient way of citing your sources. Not just in the Bible, but just in ancient uh, literature in general. So the, all these specific names were like footnotes. It was like, if you want to follow up on this, you can go talk to this person. Like, this is a verifiable claim. If you want to actually do your own investigation and see whether this is actually true, here is, here is somebody, here are some people that you can go, here's where you can find them, here's how you trace who they are. You can actually go talk to these people. And so Mark cites four specific witnesses to Jesus' death and eventually his resurrection. Witness number one is Joseph of Arimathea. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, which is the highest kind of ruling Jewish council. And he's a very credible Jewish leader. But the other gospel writers make it clear that he and several other prominent Jewish leaders like Nicodemus had also privately become disciples of Jesus. Witness number two is Pilate. We, we studied Pilate, right? Pilate is the Roman governor who actually reluctantly gave the order for the crucifixion. 
And he, he wanted to know for sure, he wanted to make sure Jesus was actually dead. And so he called in the third witness, the Roman centurion, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This was a Roman commander who would have overseen uh, 80 to 100 Roman soldiers. And part of his responsibility was that he would preside over a crucifixion. And then witness number four is this group of women who were also disciples of Jesus. This is the same group of women that we saw earlier in chapter 15, verse 40, who were there during Jesus' crucifixion. They saw him die. They watched him be taken off the cross. And those same women followed Joseph and saw Jesus' body be placed in Joseph's tomb. The initial eyewitnesses, all the gospel writers, and other external sources all testified to the fact that Jesus actually died on the cross and that it was actually his dead body in Joseph's tomb. But there's something else fascinating here. God chooses women to be the initial witnesses to the resurrection. Now, for us, that doesn't sound like super profound, but it's almost like Mark goes out of his way to emphasize this here. And listen, that, don't, don't hate me, that this is the exact opposite of what you would have done in the first century if you wanted to write a credible document. Okay, I told you, don't be mad. Let me just explain what, what I mean here, right? So when I was in seminary, I'll never forget it, several years ago, I'm in seminary, I'm sitting in class. And uh, we're studying, I'm in the theology class, we're studying the role of women in ministry. And I'll never forget, one of the students in my class actually had the audacity to say out loud, I would never want women as leaders in my church. Women are way too emotional to make those kinds of decisions. I know, that was, that was yeah, that was, yeah, I know, I get it, I, I got it, right? Well, listen, that logic, way too emotional. That was the prevailing view of women here in the first century. In fact, a woman's testimony was inadmissible evidence in court. Celsus, who was a, a second century critic of Christianity, actually mocked the idea. We have this in his writing. He mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged Resurrection witness is one of the reasons why he just discounted and, and felt like the resurrection was discredited because Mary Magdalene is one of the initial witnesses. And you know what he said? He said it's because she was, this is a quote, a hysterical female. But notice, as you read the gospel writers, account of the resurrection. They record women as the initial witnesses to the resurrection. They do not shy away from the fact that women are foundational to the early Christian witness of the gospel. And so listen, not only does this dignify women as equal image bearers of God and co-laborers in the gospel, but it shows us very practically that this isn't just a made-up story. Because if you're trying to be persuasive, if this is just religious propaganda and you're trying to convince people that what you're writing is true, you're not going to use witnesses that everybody in that society saw as people who were not credible. Listen, here's my point. Mark, what, what, whatever you believe about the resurrection, Mark and the New Testament writers are writing history, not mythology. They are writing historical documents and bearing witness to historical claims about an actual historical event. And so these women want to pay their respects to Jesus after it's been confirmed that he is dead and they know exactly where he's been buried in verse 2 of chapter 16. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? You remember, all the male disciples are hiding. They've denied Jesus and they are hiding. And it's these women 
who are going solo to pay respects and to honor Jesus whom they love. And I want to pause there for a minute because I want you to just think about something. Jesus had taught them multiple times that he was actually going to be raised from the dead. We studied this together in Mark. I won't show you all the verses, but it's over and over and over again. At least three times in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10, Jesus said over and over again, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And even in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, which we'll see mentioned later, Jesus said to them, he said, you remember this, he said, you will all fall away. He's talking to his male disciples. He says, you're all going to deny and forsake me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then he said, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, you would think that on the third day, somebody would have been like, wait a minute. (laughs) Like on the first day, grief. The Sabbath, despair. But on the third day, maybe we should at least, I don't know, but I remember him vaguely talking about something about, maybe we should at least go check it out. No. The male disciples, hiding, not even there. These women who want to honor Jesus, even they, they don't understand, they don't believe. They're taking burial spices to pay respects to Jesus. And they're wondering who's going to roll the stone away of the tomb. Like they are convinced that Jesus is dead. And here's why I point that out. Because it shows us that the idea of the resurrection was just as difficult for them to believe as it is for us today. They didn't just believe because they were ancient or primitive people. They believed because it actually happened. Because it actually happened. But even for those of us who do already believe, it highlights something that I think all of us can relate to. That even for those of us who believe, we often struggle to believe God's promises. We can get overwhelmed by the reality of our circumstances, weighed down by our own fears. So much so that we struggle Like God's promises don't even register. And even if they do, we struggle to actually trust his promises. And this is where these women are. Even with good intentions, even wanting to honor Jesus, they struggle. But God surprises them. Verse 4. Three surprises, back to back to back. Verse 4, it says, And looking up, they saw, first surprise, that the stone had been rolled back. And in case you were wondering, Mark notes... And it was very large, okay? (laughs) Stone, the tomb is rolled away. The stone is rolled away, right? And the other gospel writers attest to this. And listen, here's the thing. The tomb, the stone wasn't rolled away, right, so that Jesus could get out. We know in other gospel accounts later on that he's going to just drift his way through a door, right? No, the, 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 the stone was rolled away so that the women could get in. And they could actually bear witness to the fact that the the tomb was empty. So first surprise, they're approaching, the stone is rolled away. I don't think they were connecting the dots yet. They're probably just confused, but they keep going. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, here's surprise number two, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And the other gospel writers make it more explicit that this was an angel. In fact, there were two angels. But Mark and his, we talked about this, his kind of typical get-to-the-point style. He, Mark leaves out a lot of details and he'll just kind of get to the point. He just focuses on the angel that spoke. Now, let me just say, first of all, if you, if you pull up to your garage today, it's a random glowing dude just chilling in your garage, you're going to be alarmed too. These ladies, they're alarmed. They're afraid. So verse 6, the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Here's surprise number three. He's risen. He's risen. He is not 
here. See the place where they laid him. Come, come on in. Look for yourself. He's not here. You were just here two nights ago. You saw his body placed here. You saw the stone rolled in front. He's not here. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were in complete shock initially. But we know that eventually they told the other disciples and they actually encountered the risen Jesus himself. Now I want us to slow down and I want us to think about why the resurrection is then important for us today in 2023. But before I do that, let me just explain something about verses 9 through 20. Because if you've got your own copy of the Bible, if you look at it, you see verses 9 through 20 is in brackets. And it's in brackets for a reason. You probably see a little note there. And here's why. Because it's almost certainly verses 9 through 20 is a later addition to Mark's gospel. And I wish I had more time to dive into all the details. But the bottom line is this, that verses 9 through 20 they're, they don't show up in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, the, 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 the copies that we have of the original documents. In fact, there's other alternative endings right after verse 8 that were kind of floating around the early church. And so most likely it wasn't actually a part of Mark's original uh, gospel. Now, as soon as I say that, you might think or you may ask, well, doesn't that make you question then the reliability of the Bible or at least the New Testament? And again, I wish I had time to get into all the details, but no, it doesn't. For several reasons, having nothing to even do with the gospel of Mark in terms of the reliability of the Bible. But one reason why this doesn't make me nervous at all is because even if it's not original to Mark's gospel, the material is all true. And we see, everything we see after verse 8, we see it in Matthew 28, and we see it in Luke 24. So Matthew, he attests to all the resurrection appearances that we see here. Luke attests to those same things. And so the early church had access to all four of the Gospels. And I think verses 9 through 20 was likely eventually added as a sort of epilogue to Mark's Gospel. And our Bible translations, I think, are right to put it in brackets. Now, this is debated among scholars. There's some people that do think it was included in the original Gospels, and that's why our modern versions, they still include it, but they put it in brackets so you can do the research and you can decide for yourself. But nothing in there contradicts anything else in the Gospel. In fact, I believe because we have all the other Gospels that the early church took all of that information and added this as a sort of epilogue uh, in church tradition. Jesus was raised from the dead, appeared to the disciples and hundreds of other people, led a 40-day intensive on the kingdom of God, and then ascended back into heaven. Now, why does this matter today? Why does this matter today? Why does an event that happened two years ago now why does it matter in 2023? Well, I just want to answer, briefly answer just four questions. And we're going to move through them quickly because I just want to help you just reflect on and really just start reflection on what the resurrection means for all of us today. What does the res resurrection mean? What does the resurrection mean for you? What does the resurrection mean for the church? And then we'll wrap up with what does the resurrection mean for the world? Number one, what does the resurrection mean? Well, I want you to think about Jesus' life and ministry. We've been looking at that 
for what feels like since the beginning of time, right, in the Gospel of Mark, right? We've been studying this together. So we've been walking through his life, his teaching, and his ministry. And I want you to think about what we've studied together. So think about Mark chapter 1, right? Jesus taught with divine authority. You remember he's teaching and people are astonished and they're like, who is this person who teaches with such authority? They're blown away. And here's why I think about it. If you're writing a research paper, how do you support your arguments and substantiate your claims? Right? You reference, you have citations, hopefully. You reference other scholars who are known to be experts in that field. So you borrow their authority in order to boost your credibility. That's how it works. Well, that's exactly how the scribes taught. And you see this all over the Gospels. They would always rely on the authority of Moses or the interpretations of a particular rabbi. But Jesus is different. Like when Jesus was teaching, it seemed like he was teaching based on his own authority. So he would say things like this. You remember he would say things like, you have heard it said... But I say to you, or he would say wild things. He would say outrageous things like this. He would say, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And listen to what he says. It is they that bear witness about me. And then these were fighting words. He said, if you, he's talking to Jewish people. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote about me. Pause, Jesus. You're a little wild, Jesus. What are we doing? (laughs) Right? Um, Imagine me, you don't know me, you don't know who I am. I just show up today, hop on stage, interrupt the service with sidebar. I would not recommend. Security is a real thing around here, right? We have the ministry of laying on hands. All right, so, uh, so imagine I jump up on stage, I interrupt the service, and I say... All them songs y'all were just singing, it's about me. God bless you. Good night. You'd be like, it'd be crazy. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, all the scriptures that you've been learning about, they're all about me. Who is this dude? He taught with divine authority. You look at Mark 2, Jesus claimed authority to forgive sins, something only God himself had authority to do. All throughout his ministry, Jesus exercised authority over disease. You remember some of the people Jesus healed, a man who was paralyzed, a woman who was suffering from an issue of blood, she was hemorrhaging and dying, and she had spent all of her money on doctors trying to get healed. Nobody could heal her. And over and over again, he exercises his authority over disease. Jesus exercised authority over demons. And even though the crowds were often confused about Jesus, the demons weren't confused. The demons were not confused. They, they knew, matter of fact, whenever Jesus showed up, they knew they had no jurisdiction. That's why think about, think about that vision in Isaiah 6. You remember Isaiah 6, where God is sitting on the throne, high and exalted, and it says there are these massive angelic creatures called seraphim. They have six wings. They're hovering around the throne of God. And remember what they're calling out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they're covering their faces and they're covering their feet out of reverence in the presence of God. And the demons have a similar response when they're in the presence of Jesus. They tremble and they publicly recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God. Jesus even exercised authority over death. Remember in Mark chapter 5, he raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead. And remember from John's gospel that he raised Lazarus from the dead. But there's a tension building. Because the question that's hanging as we get to the end of Mark's gospel is, 
But what about his own death? How do you, ex- how do you raise somebody from the dead if you're dead? So it's almost like he's been on this kingdom campaign throughout his life and ministry, and it just comes to a screeching halt on the cross because now Jesus is dead. And for the disciples, it's fade to black. All of their messianic expectations are done, and now they are in hiding. But we know the rest of the story. We've been given the resurrection revelation of the gospel. We are not just sitting and wondering what's going to happen as Jesus is in the grave. It's not like the commander's preseason. We're not just like, how is all this going to turn out? No, we know that he died on the cross and he went into that tomb. And three days later, the one who healed the sick, the one who cast out demons, the one who forgave sins, the one who raised the dead actually got up from himself and he demonstrated that he is the risen king. So listen, you put all this together. What does the resurrection mean? It means that Jesus is not just a teacher or a miracle worker. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the king of kings. That's who he is. That's what the resurrection means. But the question you need to ask yourself is then what does the resurrection mean for you? If he's the resurrected king, what does this mean for you? Did you catch what the angel said to the women? angel said to the women, go and tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that Jesus is alive. And we've studied this. You remember, you remember what, what, how the disciples flaked on Jesus. They denied, they, they abandoned Jesus. And Peter, he was, he was the most shameful one of them all, the one who says so boldly, Jesus, I will never deny you. And he denies Jesus three times. And so when Jesus through the angel tells the women, I want you to go tell my disciples and Peter. And you're like, well, why does he single out Peter? Well, you remember, Eric talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he taught on this. He said because Peter probably didn't feel like he still qualified to be a disciple. But Jesus didn't just throw them away. In fact, what we see here is something so profound. It teaches us something that is core to the gospel. We follow Jesus in response to his grace, not in order to earn his grace. Like this is a preview of the gospel itself. That Jesus did not come because you and I, through our good works and our resume, right, of righteousness attracted him to us. No, he came because we deserve the judgment of God. We talked about that last week, and we can't, didn't do anything to earn the goodness of God. And he came and he offered his life as perfect righteousness and then died in our place as a perfect sacrifice. And he rose from the grave so that we could experience his grace. And in response to that, you and I can live in devotion to Jesus. And that's what we talked about last week, that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, the question is, are you sure? And the resurrection is a resounding yes with an exclamation point. So let me help you understand this real quick. So as a college student... I remember that feeling of walking up to the grocery store, going to the Nike outlet, and swiping my little debit card, and then time standing still. (laughs) As I wondered, as all these people now are waiting, because I took way too long, is this going to be one of those moments where the cashier leans in and very politely and quietly says, I'm sorry, sir. Card says insufficient funds. <laughs> oh, it's happened to me, okay? 
It's, it's traumatizing, right? It's not what happens to Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. And he gave his last breath and he went into that tomb. When Jesus was raised from the grave, it was God's way of, of shouting and echoing throughout all of human history. It's paid in full. That everything that's necessary has been paid by Jesus on the cross. It was verification that his sacrifice was sufficient and it was accepted. And here's the thing, though, that, that so many of us, even if we believe the gospel, it's not that we worry about whether or not God the Father accepted Jesus. Our problem is that in the reality of life, we worry about whether or not God really accepts us. Amen. Like when we pray, man, is God really listening? I don't even, I've been so, I don't even deserve to ask him for what I want or to come to him with what I need. When you sin and you're wondering if that's somehow just disqualify if you just blew it in your relationship with God or when you're suffering and we've all been here before and it's like at first okay count it all joy right but then it just keeps coming and at a certain point with unanswered prayer and struggle after struggle you start wondering like the best of us yo does God really love me man like if he really loved me or if he was even real like why would he allow this to happen or keep happening. Is he punishing me? Or maybe even in death, when you think about death, you know how many people here watching, how many people around the world, when they think about death, there's an anxiety because you realize deep down you're not 100% sure what's going to happen. You don't know on the other side of death whether or not you will actually be accepted by God. And so you come up with your own kind of situation. Hopefully your good works outweigh your bad works or whatever it is. And there's this anxiety because you can't be sure. We wonder, does God, can God really accept Accept us and listen. The resurrection wasn't just proof that Jesus was pleasing to God, the resurrection was proof that in Jesus we can be pleasing and acceptable to God because of what He's done. Listen, this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that Jesus was raised for our justification. So, what does the resurrection mean for you? Very simply, it means that Jesus has already done everything necessary for you to be accepted by God. Amen. So what does the resurrection mean for the church? What does it mean for the church? I don't mean like the building or a brand. I mean like the people of God who have been saved and sent into the world by Jesus. What does that mean for the church? Man, it means so much. It means so much. But let me, let me illustrate it this way. Um, Kobe Bryant, legendary NBA player for the Lakers. Uh, this past week, it would have been his 45th birthday. And so it was highlights every, all over sports news, all over social media this week. And I, I saw one highlight of one of Kobe's most epic games. It's actually one of the greatest performances in NBA history. Some of y'all remember, it was, I think it was July 22nd, 2006. He's playing the Toronto Raptors. They're actually down, I think by like 18, with like six minutes left in the game, and Kobe just goes into beast mode. Mama mentality. He just starts killing it. He goes on a scoring spree, and by the end of the game, Kobe Bryant scored 81 points in one game. Y'all remember that? 81 points. Now, if you're one of his teammates in that game, there are moments that feel like we're losing. Well, they were actually losing. And you have two choices to make. One is to say, it's a wrap. The other is to say, it's Kobe. My guy has a gear that he can shift into and he can actually put up 81 points and he can dig us out of this hole and win this game. Here's my point. Here's my point. We got Kobe, right? 
that as the church, as the people of God, as we go out into a world, you look at all the stats coming in about emerging generations who don't identify with religion, don't want anything to do with the church or anything to do with Christianity, and it can feel like, yo, we on a losing team. Trust me, we are not. Jesus is king. He rose from the grave. And here's the thing, that Jesus that rose from the grave demonstrating that he has all power is actively at work pursuing people. Why? Because he said he came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. And so his resurrection gives us confidence as we go into the world. It gives us, it's why Jesus said what we say every week together. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what? Therefore, you now go and you make disciples. You tell people about the risen Jesus and you bear witness to that resurrection life in the way that you live. Listen, we're not in a game, y'all. We're in a war. We're in a war, but it's not a war against people. It's a war for people. And Jesus won the war when he rose from the grave. The apostle Paul says that God the Father disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he embarrassed them. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. He has won the war. And here's what that means, y'all. What that means, and this is why I do ministry, what that means is no matter what it looks like in culture or society, Jesus is going to build his church. He is going to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and gather them into his eternal community. And so we have confidence as we go into our neighborhoods and our schools and we go into the office Like, does it cross your mind as you go into those different environments that the risen king is actively working and pursuing the people that are around you? And we just get the benefits, y'all. This is what the resurrection means for the church. We just get the privilege of saying you can be set free. Everything that's necessary for you to be accepted by God and set free from Satan, sin, and death, it has been accomplished by Jesus. And that's what he did in my life. And can I just tell you how you can experience that in your life? This is what it means for the church. Here's the last thing, and then we'll wrap up. What does the resurrection mean for the world? For the world. Well, let me take you back before we end to something we looked at in the Gospel of Mark. You remember this? During the Last Supper, Jesus says something that is it's, it's exhilarating when you think about it. So he's leading the disciples in the Passover meal. And you remember we talked about this. The Passover meal is divided into four parts, and each part is marked by passing this cup of wine. So there's four cups, right? And so he leads them through the first part, which is thanksgiving to God the Father, and they pass the first cup of wine. He moves on to the second part, which would have been him just retelling the story of the Exodus and the story of the Passover. They pass the second cup of wine. And then you remember, he just stops in the middle of it and says, one of y'all is going to betray me. Remember, we talked about that, right? So there's that whole scene. And then he moves on to the third cup of wine. And that's when he does something unexpected. That's when he reinterprets the whole Passover meal in light of what he's about to do on the cross. And he institutes the Lord's Supper. Remember, he says, this bread represents my body. That's broken for you. And this cup, this wine represents my blood. He says, that's going to be shed for you with the new covenant in my blood. You remember this, right? Third cup of wine. And then you expect that he's about to lead in the fourth part, and he's going to lead them in taking the fourth cup of wine, and he doesn't. Look at what he says, Mark chapter 14, verse 25. He says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine." Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
it's almost like he refuses to take that last cup of wine because he's like, no, 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 no. The work has been accomplished, but it's not, it's not fully consummated. We're still in a fallen, broken world. Like this world still isn't what it was ultimately designed to be. And so, so I came and I died on the cross as a sacrifice for you. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to rise from the grave, but I didn't just come. He says, I want this to be a little bookmark for you because I'm coming again. And this time I'm coming again, not just to save souls, but this time I'm coming again to actually save and restore human bodies and all of creation. And this is the ultimate ending of the good news of the gospel. The resurrection proves that God loves the world that he created. Not just your soul, but he loves your body. This is why one day when Jesus comes back, these broken bodies will be no more, and we're going to receive glorified bodies. And the Bible talks about something called the new creation, that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to renew all things. And he says, on that day, he says, hold my cup. He says, on that day, we're we're going to celebrate. On that day, we're going to enjoy the eternal goodness of the triune God together. And there's going to be so many more people around this table who get to enjoy the goodness of God because of what I've done in my death and resurrection. So listen, the resurrection is not just a happy ending. It is a brand new beginning. It is the inauguration of the new creation that you and I have to look forward to. And listen, if you really believe this, it changes your entire life. It changes your entire life. Let me show you how I end with this. The band can come out as we prepare to close. If you've ever gone through kind of foster care process before personally or you've learned about it as you read about it you learn about the trauma that a lot of foster children experience particularly when they've been in a foster care situation where there's been extreme poverty or abuse what you'll read about is something called food hoarding what that is is a lot of kids if they're in a really abusive situation or in extreme poverty as as foster kids sometimes they're not sure when their next meal is going to come And so what will happen is they will begin to hoard or stockpile food. And they get so used to that because of anxiety that they won't have enough food that even when they get adopted into a new family, y'all, they could get adopted into a new family in Great Falls, right? And even when they have breakfast every morning, lunch every afternoon, dinner every evening, snacks all in between, cookies and milk every night before bed, a refrigerator full of food, an extra freezer in the basement, even now that they have access to all of that, they will still hoard and stockpile food because there's this anxiety that maybe there won't be enough. Listen, why, why do you and I struggle so much with discontentment when we compare ourselves to other people? Why do we struggle with so much despair in the midst of our suffering when something or someone is taken from us? Yes, there's grief, there's pain, but why so much despair? Why so much materialism and greed? Why do we just keep hustling just to get more and more and more and we refuse to be generous and we cling to our material possessions instead of doing what we see in the New Testament? You know why? It's because we don't, deep down, we often don't really realize or believe that resurrection life is really true. Deep down, we believe that this broken world is the only world that we're ever going to get. Think about how your life would be different if you actually believed that the resurrection is proof that there is another world that God has prepared for us to live in. Because here's the thing, here's the promise of the gospel. It's not just that you're going to show up in heaven one day and you're going to get a, a consolation prize for everything that you think you've lost in this world. No, it's not like you're going to show up and be like, oh, well, I didn't get the dream house. And, so, and God's going to be like, well, don't worry, here's a harp, right? No. 
No. You're not going to get consolation for everything you think you've lost in this world. You're going to get the perfection of everything that you think you've lost in this world. Amen. That God is going to renew all things. Amen. That everything that you sacrifice as a follower of Jesus or the brokenness and suffering of this world that causes you to feel deep pain, he promises that he is not aloof, he is not naive, he is not forgotten. And he's not just going to abandon his design for this world or your desires in this world, but he is going to satisfy every single one of your desires in the fullness of his presence one day. This is what we have to look forward to, and this is why early Christianity changed the world. This is why this little group of disciples that were afraid and hiding, all of a sudden they become so bold, ready to die for their faith and be burned at the stake. It's why they're willing, willing to give up their possessions to take care of not only poor Christians, but the poor in the society that was persecuting them. It's why Christians were the ones that invented hospitals and modern medicine. And the adoption and foster and orphan care system, it's because they knew that they had this greater life and this greater world that they were going to get to enjoy forever. And it freed them to open their hands to be generous to people around them and to be willing to share the gospel no matter what it cost them. This is the good news of the gospel. It's what we see as we finish up the gospel of Mark and it's what... Jesus accomplished for us in his resurrection. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis as we close. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. Jesus died and he rose so that you can enjoy that world now, but ultimately in the life to come. And if you're here or you're watching and you're not a Christian, I hope you'll make the decision today to put your trust in him. And if you are a Christian, we all need God's help to believe that to our core and to live in light of that reality. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the greatest news in human history. It's good news that we've been able to trace through the gospel of Mark and Jesus' life and his teaching and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And we look forward to the day where he comes again to restore and to renew. And Father, I pray for anyone watching or listening that is not a Christian, that you would do a supernatural miracle in their hearts, Lord. You would open their hearts to truly receive the truth of the gospel and the trust in Jesus, and you would save them. And I pray, Father, for those of us who are Christians, Lord, that you would help us to live in light of the reality of the resurrection. We praise you, God, for what you've done, and we look forward to what you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.